Top of the morning, y'all, from Dawn and Steve. Steve kicks off today's show with how do I talk to my kids about social justice? Any ideas? Then you can call or text 800-555-7898. Up next is the Devo. And if you want to get your hands on it, just text that word D-E-V-O to 800-555-7898. Well, I'm almost starting to believe the y'all Briggs. You've been saying it long enough. It's almost starting to feel like it's coming as second nature to you. All the locals don't believe it. No, <laughs> no, they don't do it that. It doesn't work. No. Yeah, yeah. I said almost starting almost, to believe it. I'm almost, not there yeah. yet. Another year or two, right? Yeah, exactly. Keep it up. We'll, we'll get there. Hey, today is National Pie Day, which is a very exciting day if uh, you are a fan of pie. And uh, I have a, I have a guess that I might know what uh, your favorite pie is, but I'm not sure about this. So, Briggs, is, are, what? We t- are we talking sweet or savory? Well, it could be either one. Because in England, pie is savory. Here, it's sweet. Um, key, okay. lime, key lime pie is up there, and that's also yours, isn't it, for the, that would for again. the sweet one? Exactly. Um, and for the savory, steak and ale or chicken and mushroom. Um, I used to, you call it a chicken pot pie in, in America, but yeah, um, there's a lot of good pies that are come out of pie shops in England. Or there's a, a, a strange one that you don't have here so much is mince pies, which happen only at Christmas, which is like a... A pie with raisins, and uh, Tara will appreciate that, I'm sure, our listener, who is also from the UK. Yeah, well, I've, we've talked about mince pie, and I, I've been on record. I would be willing to try it as I've looked at the ingredients and everything. I'm like, well, there's nothing in there that I don't think I dislike. Just never had it before. But if you're wondering what do people like here in the U.S., what is their favorite type of pie? Briggs, you got a guess as to what Americans say is their favorite type of pie? Chess pie? No, that's that, a good that's guess. That's good. It is good, though. It I, is good. I, if anybody wants to bring me in chess pie, I'll be happy. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what that was until we moved down here. And then I, I learned what chess pie was. I'm like, that is some pretty good stuff. But that would fall into the other category, of which 24% of people gave uh, something other than four other answers. Top uh, Chocolate, which you could do a chocolate chess pie. Chocolate was uh, topping the list on the other category. Coming in at uh, the fourth most popular pie is blueberry at 9%. Third most popular, apple. I'm sorry, cherry at 14%. Uh, Coming in at number two, pecan pie at 16%. And apple running away with the lead at 37% of all Americans saying that that is their favorite pie. Interesting. Can't go wrong with an apple pie. No. Key lime, like you is probably ahead of that for me. Yep. And, uh, you know, the other one that is not mentioned on any list that I looked at today, but they're saying, you know, pies don't have to be sweet, like you pointed out in the U.K. They can be savory. I'm going with a pizza pie. A pizza pie. I mean, <laughs> Giordano's or Chicago-style Chicago deep-dish pizza. Oh, man. You now, put, we, de- we debate this, don't we? Lou Malnati's, I think, is better than Giordano's, but you're a Giordano's fan. I'm going to put Lou's at number two on my list, but either way, I'd be happy with either one today. So give, uh, let's go a Chicago-style pizza pie. Sounds good. And a key lime pie, and we're covered, man. What about the maths pie? 
A what pie? A maths pie. You know the pie in maths, if you like mathematics. Oh, 3.14? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all the uh, engineers. Uh, and That's uh, their probably, pie. Exactly. They're liking that one. We'll probably end up talking about this on March the 14th as well. But we're glad you're with us this morning on this uh, 23rd day of January, about uh, four minutes after the hour. And we're going to get into God's Word together this morning. You know, John chapter 8 and verse 32 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You know, when you think about God's truth, how do you think of his truth? Do you think of it as something that is just kind of restrictive, like God said it, so man, that's the way it has to be? You know, the fact is, his truth never actually restricts you. It always sets you free. But how? What are we talking about here? Well, think about this. Are you discouraged? There is a sense of bondage maybe in a particular area of your life. Maybe you have a lack of victory over a certain kind of sin. Maybe you're dealing with a harmful addiction. You know, it's possible that you don't yet understand a truth about God that can release you. Here's what we mean. If you feel powerless to meet the real challenges before you, take encouragement from the promise of Philippians 4.13. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so if you're defeated in your circumstance, hold on to the truth of Romans 8.28, that God can work your most difficult situation into his good. If you're enslaved in a particular sin, the work of 1 John 1.9 comes into your life. That verse promises that if you confess your sin, God is faithful to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. All of these truths await the Holy Spirit's implementation into your life. Now, it's one thing to, in a sense, kind of know these verses, to have them memorized, to be able to, when somebody says something along these lines, you pull out one of those verses and you know about it. It is another thing to experience the truth of God being worked out in your life. God's truth will have no effect on you unless you accept it and believe it. And that part is key. got to believe it. Perhaps you've already read and you've heard accounts of God working mightily in the lives of other people. Here's the question. Have you allowed God to implement those truths into your life? And what truth about God would you like to be experiencing in your life? Here's a key. Ask him. Ask him today to implement that truth into your life. If you want a copy of this morning's devotion, I'd love to get that to you. Simply text the word Devo, D-E-V-O, to 800-555-7898, 800-555-7898, or it's linked on our Facebook page. Well, Don is off today. She's going to be back next week, but glad that you have joined us this morning, and we're going to have a conversation that uh, I think is one that needs to happen in a lot of households. I will never forget the day that one of my kids came home from kindergarten, and he was uh, talking about the fact that it's okay for kids to have two moms or two dads. I'm like, where'd you hear that? I was like, well, at school. Like, wait, wait a minute. You're in kindergarten. 
What are you doing coming home with messages like that from kindergarten? But yet our kids are receiving all sorts of uh, ideologies and information that's kind of being dumped on them as they go out into this world, whatever their world looks like. And joining us to talk a little bit more about how do we have these conversations with our kids and why it is so important is Chuck Mason. Chuck is a podcaster, speaker, author. He's written the book, How Do I Talk to My Kids About Social Justice? And uh, Chuck, thanks for joining us. Hey, um, thank you very much, and it's great to be here, Steve. I appreciate it. You know, when I hear the word social justice, certain things pop into mind for me. But for the sake of conversation, let's uh, kind of define our terms here so we're all on the same page. When we talk about having these conversations about social justice, how are you defining that? And what are the issues you're, you're thinking about, Chuck? Well, we differentiate mar- um, woke social justice from a biblical social justice, and um, it's what was the social justice we're dealing with in schools takes a Marxist paradigm where they consider that all of society has been set up as oppressors and oppressed, and so they want to identify that. And the, the social justice aspect is reordering society so that you can have equity, equality of outcome. And that's kind of the Marxist endgame. So um, LGBTQ, critical race theory, cancel culture, DEI, all of these things are really social engineering so that we can engineer justice into our society so that we can um, remove inequalities and differences in outcomes, which would be the hallmark of oppression and exploitation. All right. So how is that different than biblical justice? Because justice is talked a lot about in the Bible. Micah 6, 8 is probably one of the first verses that would come to mind for a bunch of people where we're told to act justly. And then I think of the Apostle Paul when he's writing to the church in Corinth about giving, and he tells them that if you have much, that is a time for you to give because there may be a season when you don't, and there can be equity amongst all. Well, you know, that's a fantastic point. And being able to differentiate these is really critical for all of us as believers and parents, especially when you're having a conversation with your kids. Our biblical justice is found within the righteousness of God. And God's righteousness and God's expectations for us in community are vastly different than a sense of justice within a Marxist paradigm. Um you know, it's very interesting. You're right. We are called to to give from our abundance. We are called to minister to those in need. But the central point of God's interaction with us as human beings is that we're called to an individual accountability to him. You could think of Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents, that we're supposed to, to do all we can to maximize who we are and our gifts and abilities to make sure that we're accomplishing as much as we can. Um, to the best of our abilities. But Marxism wants equality of outcome. And so if somebody in society does not put forth effort or somebody in society doesn't develop who they are necessarily to the best of their abilities, that Marxism still wants to see an equal outcome, a distributing of resources to make sure that there's a like a global equality. And that's vastly different than giving from your abundance and helping people to a point where they're going to be able to carry themselves to the best of their abilities. And those are two fundamentally different things. As we uh, talk with Chuck this morning, you may have a question or comment. Feel free to text in 800-555-7898. That is 800-555-7898. 
uh, Chuck, we can use these kind of bigger words, you know, like equity and equality and outcomes and things like that. And, and our kids may not necessarily pick up on any of that per se. They, they may not understand CRT and uh, some of these things. So what is it typically looking like in our schools? What is the messaging that our kids are actually hearing? Um, well, if we take critical race theory, uh, you know, the, the challenge we have in society is the, the black community lags behind the white community on an annual basis in all the significant measures of, of success or thriving, whether it's SAT scores, whether it's income. So what our kids are hearing is that there's only one factor that's causing this, and that's systemic racism that's built into our society. When the point that I had made in that chapter in the book is um, there's a lot of black intellectuals who sh will show there's data that shows the cultural differences, family structure, fathers being in the home, expectations about doing homework. All of those kinds of things have a dramatic impact on how well any child does in school. But what our kids are hearing is that <clears throat> as white America, we have we experience privilege and supremacy that we work to maintain at the expense of minority communities every year. So that's what they're hearing. They don't hear the big words. What they hear is you're privileged, you're gaining special outcomes because of a hidden oppression and exploitation that you're doing, your community's doing that you can't see. And that's how it becomes almost impossible for kids to differentiate. Chuck Mason uh, with us, author of the book, How Do I Talk to My Kids About Social Justice? And when we come back in a few moments, we're going to continue this conversation. Certainly welcome to comment or question. Text in 800-555-7898. LGBTQ, that's certainly one of the messages that they're getting too. So we'll get into that and a lot more ahead. So stay with us. And we're talking with Chuck Mason this morning. Chuck is an author, speaker, podcaster. You can uh, check him out when you go to battlegroundideas.com and uh, find more information about his book and his podcast there. Uh, the book, How Do I Talk to My Kids About Social Justice? Critical Race Theory, Cancel Culture, LGBTQ are just some of the topics tackled in here. And Chuck, let's, let's pick one of those and talk about that for a minute here. I, I mentioned a little bit earlier that even at, as a kindergartner, one of my kids came home talking about the fact that he was told in school that it was okay for you know boys and girls to have two mommies or two daddies and that that was good was the message that he received and we had to have conversations about all that as my kids have gotten mm -hmm. older you know those conversations get a little bit more nuanced and even more complicated because we're not just talking about necessarily an ideology we're we're talking about people they know their friends who are identifying a certain way and so they're coming home and they're saying, you know, well, my friend is gay. My friend is a lesbian. My friend is whatever. And so how do we have these conversations with our kids in a way that actually can be healthy and maybe instill biblical truth into their minds in a way that will stick? You know, that's a great question. And I, one of the reasons why I wrote the book is I had to deal with this, these issues with my own sons. Um, it's a, there are three components that it really is critical for parents to be able to do to have these effective conversations. The first is you have to build relationship with your kids. Um, and, and that may sound like a given, but when you, when you do surveys in, in Christian homes, intact Christian homes, 
our kids are underneath our roof, but we're really not spending a lot of time with them on a day-by-day basis or throughout the week. It's really actually shockingly low how much we actually are interacting with our kids because you have to build the foundation for great conversations, and particularly when they're able to trust you um, within those. The second thing that parents need is really good information. Most of us can come at this from a biblical worldview, um, and and we can do that really well. We can argue from Scripture about um, same-sex relationships, or you know, trend, you know, their, their friends that are who are transgender, in terms of the way God created us and His expectations. But these ideologies and the information our kids are encountering, they've got their in a sex-positive world, which is what they're calling that out there today. They've got their own criteria. And if you don't understand how the ideological positions work and are able to have really intelligent conversations within their frameworks, then it becomes difficult. And that's what I ended up doing in the book is to help break this down for parents. But once you're able to do that and you're able to understand um, the way that these uh, these positions fall apart when they're challenged. If you have the right information, you could ask really directed, pointed questions that cause kids to think and frame the failures of the ideologies in ways that they can understand. And so if you have those kinds of conversations and then have your biblical conversations, eventually they come together. And the kids are able to go through a process of their own understanding where they're able to see how these fall apart and then the implications for themselves or society. And and that's really the global picture for having the conversations that are really effective. All right. So let me uh, throw an example here at you. Sure. Uh, our, our kid comes home and, uh, you know, they're high school age and they say, Jack now is Jill. And Jack still mm-hmm. looks like Jack. Maybe he's grown his hair out. He's done a few little things. But now he, he's now Jill because he believes he was this boy trapped in a or a girl trapped in a boy's body. And our kids are like, I don't know how to respond to that. I don't know how to engage. Do I? Do I not? I'm being told that I have to affirm that or else I'm a hater, I'm a bigot, and I don't want to be those things. So what do I do, Chuck? Well, this was, it was that very scenario that really forced me to rethink what I was doing with my own sons. Um, When my oldest came home and was defending the position, of course, you react like a parent and know, and the Bible says this, and we do that, and all of these things, and all all that did was create more heat. So I, I really had to step back and I had to, I just basically used my apologetics training um, that I had, you know, from Fuller, from Fuller Seminary. Mm-hmm. We ha- you have to ask questions. And so I went back to, so what I did in terms of the transgender ideology, um, of course, I had the, the ability to tear all these ideologies apart because that's what I did when, you know, studied philosophy when I was at Fuller. But what yeah, what I did was I I started by positioning how the concept of transgenderism worked with my son so that we could get on the same page. And I, and basically it was this, why do people, why does your friend think that he's, or why does he identify as female or as a girl? And it's because of what we call um, social conditioning, meaning that if everything is a construct, if we're not created in God's image, and if gender is simply what society says it can be, and people adopt that because we're becoming post-truth, which means feelings take precedence over facts. So if he feels he's a girl and society is okay with him being a girl, then he can be a girl. And we all agreed on that. Well, they want that 
to stay in that protected space with just within gender. But if everything about us as human beings is a social construct, then everything's a social construct. So I looked at him and I said, hey, well, if that's the case, then what if I decide that I want to identify as being black? And, and he was a bit horrified because I'm a, I'm, I'm a white male. Yeah. And of course, the thought about me going through life being black um, and maybe identifying as black, um, that, would, that stepped outside of the orthodoxy. And I pushed it one step further. And I said, well, okay, so I'm going to be a, a black and I'm going to be a woman. Okay. Well, and so if race isn't tied to biology, then, you know, what about disability? I wake up in the morning. I've done a lot of physical work in my life. I have a lot of pain. And I said, so I'm going to identify as a black disabled woman. And he was horrified. And I said, I'm going to go to our closest university and I'm going to, you know, apply under an affirmative action hire as a black disabled woman. And he was pretty much horrified. And I said, you set the rules. They said, if it's okay for your friend to be a girl, it's okay for me to do this. And we're not moving forward in our conversation. And you tell me until you can tell me why it's not okay for me to identify this way or for me to identify as a frog or a cat. Yeah. And so having that conversation forced him to see how this would work outside of the narrow confines of the socialization he got with his friends. And that was one, to this day, all I have to look at him and I have to say, you remember that conversation? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a teenager it's, response right the, there. That right? was the conversation that got him, yeah, to flip. Yeah. And, and I, I provide strategies all throughout the book for that. Well, the book is called How Do I Talk to My Kids About Social Justice, written by Chuck Mason. And you can connect with him online. It is battlegroundideas.com. We're going to come back, continue the conversation with Chuck in just a moment. How's the church handling all this? What can we do better? That's ahead, so stay tuned. And you can comment there. You can also text in 800-555-7898 as we continue talking with uh, Chuck Mason this morning about talking with our kids about social justice. He's written the book by that title, How Do I Talk to My Kids About Social Justice? A lot of us are kind of intimidated to have the conversation. And Chuck, you even see the intimidation or maybe the lack of uh, willingness to go there in our churches. How have you seen the church maybe drop the ball on this? And what do you think we need to do? Um, the church is extremely apprehensive about engaging. Um, and there's a variety of reasons. These, um, these ideologies are complex and it takes a, a level of just getting educated about the basic fundamentals and, and pastors really don't know where to turn for the information. The second part is that our congregations, even within our Bible believing churches are more diverse than they were 15 or 20 years ago. So when pastors, you know, when when they consider even dialoguing about this or bringing in any kind of educational perspective, they risk really creating some difficulty within their congregations, and they're really reticent in terms of doing that. Um, but, you know, one of the things I, I try to impress upon people is if these ideologies are extreme, it's because the intellectual foundations of America is changing. We're, we're losing our biblical foundation that we enjoyed for so long across the board. Uh, and it's only going to continue. This isn't going to go away overnight like most pastors and people have hoped. So, uh, you know, there's no better time than the present than to really begin to say, what is this? What do we need to what do we need to know and what do we need to do? And for the pastors and churches who are willing to say, okay, 
I'm acknowledging it's not going to go away. Burying my head in the sand has not worked. We do have to address, but man, I, I'm afraid this is going to tear my church apart. I'm afraid uh, we're going to just have this church divide into uh, separate echo chambers, and we're called to to be united in Christ. So, h- how do we have the conversation? Well, you know, uh, um, you've really touched on what is uh, like the critical point for us as believers, and uh, you know, part of it is well, my ministry is equipping people to fight this culture war by educating, to help giving them the tools. I think once people find that they have the statistics and the understanding of the ideological positions, they can speak very intelligently and compassionately about these um, about these issues. But it, it takes a it takes some effort. It takes some looking, and it it takes a bit of a. I mean, you're you're moving outside of the standard Bible study mode program mode. And that's been hard to get pastors to do. I mean, come to my website, send me an email. Um, I travel and speak to help churches understand the impact and also why two-thirds of our kids are walking away from God from our Bible-believing churches when they leave home because of these narratives. Um, But uh, you can contact me at Battleground Ideas. Yeah, I will encourage you to uh, check that out. And that is a scary stat to think of how many of our kids are walking away from our churches because we've not equipped them as they're growing up and going through youth group and such to know how to navigate these waters and have these conversations and to do so in a way that uh, is intelligent and loving, speaking truth and love as we're uh, called to do in Scripture. Chuck Mason with us, podcast host, author, speaker. Um, You can check them out online, battlegroundideas.com. That is battlegroundideas.com. And Chuck, we appreciate you joining us this morning.